If you guys remember the first, we, there's three main sections. The first section was the introduction, um, where he just gave some basic introduction, introductory um, statements. And then the main section started in around chapter two, the end of verse, or the end of chapter one, um, into chapter two. Uh, there he covered several topics which included some general principles and how they should be applied within specific groups. Um, then he went on to encourage believers that just as Jesus was vindicated before his opponents, so also will Christians be if they, like Jesus, remain faithful and righteous to the tasks God has called them to do. In this next part we'll be covering today, Peter resumes the theme of suffering. However, here in these first six verses of chapter 4, he, emphasize, he emphasizes or he shifts to the related theme of the willingness to suffer in order to avoid sin. I know that sounds strange, but yes, the willingness to suffer in order to avoid sin. And then the plan is that we'll be also covering verses 7 through 11 afterwards. And there he'll provide general instructions for the entire family of God, the church, on how we ought to live our lives in light of the fact that the end of the world is coming soon. So as we normally do, let's open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord, what, a, what an amazing week for, for all of us, Lord. Um, some of us have been through highs. Some of us have been through lows. Uh, some of us have been really swamped and busy. Um, some of us have just been bored, Lord. Um, so coming here now at your feet to worship and also just to spend time with you and listening to your word, uh, it's so refreshing, Lord. Lord, may... If there's anything that's distracting us, anything that's keeping us from remaining focused, of staying, keeping, it's keeping our eyes off you, Lord. Remove those obstacles right now, Lord, so that we may hear from you because you are the author of life. Lord, you are the, there's so much wisdom found in you, Lord, and that's what we seek today. I thank you for having us all here today. I pray you will open their, everyone's ears and hearts. Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Or may we just have a complete heart for you right now and hear from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're at. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll be starting in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. And the Word of God says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for the will, for God's will. For there already has been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. In May 2001, Eric Weinmayer accomplished something that only 150 people per, per year do. He reached the top of Mount Everest. The thing that made Eric's achievement unusual is that he was the first blind person to succeed in scaling the tallest mountain in the world. 
Eric was born with a disease called retentoretinskisis, something. Anyways, um, I got to, uh, I'll find out what that word is exactly. But, and by the time he was 13, he was completely blind. Rather than focus on what he could not do, he made the choice to focus on what he could do and went much further than almost anyone expected. Eric Weinmeier's autobiography is titled Touch the Top of the World, A Blind Man's Journey to Climb Farther Than the Eye Can See. Many times we face a choice. We will allow obstacles to stop us. Will we allow obstacles to stop us or will we keep pressing on regardless of opposition and trouble? It would be nice if following God meant that things would always work out well and people will always like us. The reality is that many times doing what is right requires overcoming obstacles. We should not expect constant smooth sailing, nor should we allow troubles that arise to convince us to quit. In this first section of chapter four, Peter is giving advice to those who find themselves in the middle of the storm of suffering. And he's, what he's doing, again, he's offering advice to remain steady, to remain focused and dedicated in that tempest. So by beginning with the word, therefore, in verse 1, Peter is making a conclusion about what he had just written about in chap, at the end of chapter 3 in verses 18 through 22. There he said that suffering, that the suffering of Jesus was the pathway to his victory and exaltation. So here he concludes that just as Christ suffered in the flesh, so too believers should resolve to suffer by being armed with the same understanding. The idea here, what he's, what he's trying to say is like a soldier who puts on his battle gear and arms himself for battle. We as believers, as Christians, should arm, us, arm ourselves with the right attitude when suffering occurs. It's having that same outlook that Jesus had and thinking as he did about obedience. It's an attitude of being convinced that it's better to do what is right and suffer for it than to do wrong. The last part of verse 1 then supplies the purpose of that suffering. The one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Now, what does that mean? I know it sounds strange. What do you mean finished with sin? Like Christ, believers should be willing to suffer for doing what is right. Because it indicates that they've ceased to let sin have dominion over them. They've ceased to let sin have power over them. The one who suffers in the flesh means whoever is suffering for doing what is right and continues to obey God in spite of it. And those who do have made, it, have made a clear break with sin. As a believer, as, or as believers, there may come a time when you'll be faced with two possibilities, sin or suffering. On one hand, you can choose to live like unbelievers around you, sharing their sinful pleasures and avoiding persecution. It's that person that is like, yeah, you know what, so I won't be made fun of. I'm just going to go ahead and have a drink or I'm going to, you know, smoke that thing and I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to party it up just so I won't be made fun of. Or the other option, you can live in purity and godliness, be ridiculed for your faith and possibly suffer at the hands of the wicked. If you deliberately choose to suffer persecution as a Christian, rather than rather than to continue in a life of sin, then you finished with sin. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you'll no longer commit sin or you'll no, no longer commit acts of sin, but that the power of sin in this life has been broken. You recognize, you know what sin is, and now you have the option of doing it or not. Before, you know, you just did whatever your flesh is or whatever you wanted to, to, to do. But now you recognize it, you acknowledge it, you know it. And so the power, by choosing not to sin, the power of sin, the power that sin, that, that what sin had once over you has been broken. You see, when a person suffers because they refuse to sin, they're no longer controlled by the will of the flesh. Now, verse 2 tells us the reason for verse 1. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Peter's saying that Christians should arm themselves with the intention to suffer so that they live, so that they will live the remainder of their lives in carrying out God's will instead of fulfilling their human lusts that dominated their lives before they were converted. See, a believer's earthly life isn't to be controlled by human passions, but again, by the will of God. Those who trust in Christ would rather live the rest of their lives suffering as a Christian than to live like unbelievers and would rather die than to deny the Lord. These believers have chosen to live the remaining years for the glory of God rather than gratifying their own sensual appetites. You see, if we do the will of God, we'll be investing in the remaining time in that which is eternal and ultimately satisfying. However, if we give in to the temporal pleasures the world offers, we'll be wasting the remaining time and regret it on the day we stand before Jesus Christ in his throne. In verse Peter, I mean, in verse 3, Peter now supplies the reason for us to no longer live or no longer live for human desires, but for God's will. He said, we've already spent enough time doing the evil things that godless people enjoy. Peter here isn't saying that our time spent sinning, that, that our time spent sinning be more than enough experience for us. He tells us bluntly that our past experience of sin is enough. Now it's time to get on with life, with a life of obedience. You've wasted all this time before. You've, you've whether, no matter how old you are when you came to the Lord, you spent all the time as a sinner doing whatever your flesh desired, getting drunk and doing drugs or, you know, just hanging out with the wrong, but the wrong people. Um, it's, it's over with. It's done. Okay, now it's time to move on. It's time to move forward and get on really with life. Enjoy life for what, it's, what it was meant or what it was created to be. And just be in obedience to the Lord. We're then given a list of various sins that in some form or another we once enjoyed doing and that also characterized us at one time as non-Christians. He mentions unrestrained behavior. This is living without any regard for moral restraint, especially to acts of sexual immorality or acts of physical violence. It's just doing whatever your flesh wants to do, whether it's, you know, making it feel good or it's just you're angry and you just want to let out that rage and just go off on the next person that comes your way. Unrestrained behavior. He also mentions evil desires. 
These are sinful human desires that negatively influence the way you think, what you say, and how you do things. He then mentions drunkenness. This is giving away your self-control to anything that will get you drunk so that your willpower is weakened to resist temptation. That could be wine, that could be liquor, that could be beer. I would even add, it could be drugs. Anything that lowers your inhibition so that it makes it hard for you to say, you know what, I shouldn't do that. Where you're getting your flesh takes over. He then mentions orgies. This doesn't just imply a specific kind of sexual perversion, but it also implies a wild, like wild parties where hooking up with someone is likely to happen. It could be at a bar where loud music or at a club where loud music is going on and, and your intent is, again, to, to start drinking, to lower your inhibitions, and that's your purpose is just to hook up with someone for the night. He then mentions carousing. This is similar to the previous two, and it's, it's being part of drinking parties where one is likely to act like a fool or, and even get into fights. That's what carousing is. The last item mentioned is lawless idolatry. This refers to evil kinds of, of idols or idol worship which involved or incited people to illegal moral behavior. It's worshiping something, and it could be you know, the computer with pornography, or it could be um, certain things that will just cause you to, to do illegal things, immoral illegal things. Now, even if you're not guilty of doing any of these, any of these sins, before you, came, before you became a Christian, the fact is that you were still a sinner. And it was those sins, it was those same sins that helped crucify Christ. So it would be foolish to, the, to, go, to, that kind of, to, the, to go back to that kind of life anyways. Verse 4 describes the common experience of those who have been saved from a life of outward corruption unsaved friends, family, and acquaintances won't understand the radical change you've experienced when you've trusted and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, when you really became born again and became children of God. They won't understand it. Maybe some of those friends, those unsaved people, think you've gone mad, think you've gone crazy, and have accused you of becoming a religious fanatic or a Jesus freak. Again, they do this because they don't understand what it means to be born again. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. They've never had that personal relationship with God. They, they have a concept of God. They have an idea about Jesus. But it's not the real Jesus. It's not the real God. If it if it's not the God of the Bible and it's not the Jesus of the Gospels we read about or the Jesus that Paul, Peter, every writer here in the New Testament talks about, then it's an idol. It's not, it's not the real thing. It's a made-up, conjured God or Jesus that people have made up in their own minds in order to make themselves, make themselves feel better about their behavior, about their sinful behavior. So, again, if you're been accused of being crazy or being a religious fanatic or a Jesus freak is because of that. They do this because they don't understand, again, what it means to be born again and have the Holy Spirit living in them. So because you have or you are born again and you do have the Holy Spirit, they now think that you've gone crazy because you just won't party with them. You won't get drunk with them like you used to. You know why? Because the clean moral life of a believer makes the sinner feel guilty for doing those ex same exact things. I know I lost a lot of friends. I don't know, when I rededicated my life and came back to the Lord, all the friends that I used to have, 
they slowly started slipping away and fading away because I just wasn't drinking anymore. I wasn't participating. Even though I wasn't shoving my faith down your throat, the fact that I wasn't even drinking or cussing or any of that, it just kind of weirded them out. And so it kind of it just backed away from me. And at first it was hurtful, but then I was okay because now I was able to spend more time with my family. And may, you may have heard me share that story before, but um, that may happen in your life too, but it's okay because you got someone on your side that cares about you more than any of those people that will always be there for you regardless of what happens to you or what, regardless of what you do. You're going to have someone with you there when there's nobody else is around and you're taking your last breath. He will be there holding your hand, guiding you into heaven. And those friends, those people, I mean, most of you know that people come and go in your life. But the one person that will remain constant will always be there is Jesus Christ. So again, it shouldn't surprise you to know that they now hate you or they now hate, hate the new you. Nevertheless, regardless of what they think of you, what they think of us, we must be patient toward the lost. Even if we don't agree with their lifestyles or participate in their sins, we have to be patient with them. We still have to have a heart of love towards them. And this could be, again, any kind of lifestyle that you don't agree with. Still have to treat them with respect and dignity. Not mistreat anybody at all. After all, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, unsaved people are blind to spiritual truth and dead to spiritual enjoyment. In fact, our contact with the lost is so important to them. It's really important to them because we're the bearers of the truth that they so desperately need. And that's why we need to have a good relationship. We have to have a good rapport with them. We can't be seen as mean Christians. You know, that Christian, that, man, he just annoys and he bugs. No, we just got to be able to share our love. So that way, again, we just we got to have that conversation with them. So when unsaved friends attack you, attack us, we should use it as an opportunity to give a defense for the hope that is in us. In verse 5, Peter then reminds us that those who slandered us won't have the last word. All those people that ever did you wrong because you were a Christian, and you know you didn't do anything wrong, but they're just slandering you, they're just saying things, and you've kept your mouth shut. You've taken it. You haven't responded back. All those people that have caused you wrong, that have done wrong to you, won't have the last word. Verse 5, again, it says, They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. This means that ultimately the wicked will be held accountable for their evil lives and their mistreatment of believers. Notice also that it's not only the living who will be judged, but also the dead. This statement is clearly implying that death will not enable anyone to escape judgment, but that all people will consciously stand before God on that day. Everyone, the living and the dead, will stand before Him and will be held accountable for what they did, for how they lived in this life. So that's why it's important that we examine, even as Christians ourselves, every single day, where am I at spiritually? If I was to stand before God right now, what would He say? What would I say? There's no excuses before God. He knows everything that's going on. 
And he wants to give you. Every time you're living, every time you're, you're alive, you're breathing, it's another opportunity that he's giving you just to come back to him or to accept his son as Lord and Savior. Because when that day comes and you do breathe your last, he's going to look at you and say, I give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and you squandered it. So there's no excuse. Almost as an afterthought, Peter adds, for this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Now many have debated as to who he's speaking about here, but the vast majority of scholars, the vast majority of commentators today argue that he's referring to Christians who were martyred for their faith. You see, because they valiantly stood for the truth or for truth, they suffered at the hands of wicked men and in some cases died a horrible, horrible death. They were killed because they didn't back down. They remained true and loyal to the Lord. They knew what the truth was and wouldn't recant. These believers, though judged or condemned in the flesh according to human standards, were vindicated by God. And now as a result, they're enjoying eternal life according to God's standards. As a believer, this is a good reminder that when unsafe family and friends oppose and falsely judge you, the final judge is God. Even if some of you have to sacrifice your lives due to persecution, your Heavenly Father will honor and reward you for remaining faithful. This is why it's so important to fear God and not man. See, whatever suffering you're being put through now or whatever future suffering that you may go through, that is nothing compared to the suffering that awaits those who reject Christ and are causing you, causing other believers to suffer. So yeah, let them judge you by their human standards. Let them. It's going to be painful and it's going to be temporary, but it's going to be temporary. It's going to hurt. But again, nothing compares to the glory that awaits. One day, we'll be with the Lord in the Spirit and receive His true and final judgment. Well, before I end this morning, I want, to, I want us to examine the next paragraph of this chapter because it resumes the theme that P Peter concluded with in verses 5 and 6. So let's pick up, um, let's go back to our Bibles and pick up in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse Peter chapter 4, verses, or verse 7. There it says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to, to one another without complaining. Just as each one received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let, him for, let, it, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him, the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if you were transported back in time 200 years. 
If you did, how would you explain the inventions we take for granted? If you spoke about computers or a PlayStation or iPhones or even YouTube, people would think that you were sort of strange. They would think that you were probably out of your mind. Be like, what are you talking about? Sounds crazy. Well, let me fill you in in a little secret where we are from the future. You see, every day that passes, we're one day closer to the kingdom of, of light being established on earth. And the Bible tells us that we already belong to that kingdom. Those of us who are in Christ have great privileges, like heads, like a heads up knowledge of end time events. None, nonetheless, with great privileges comes great responsibility. In these verses we just read, Peter tells his Christian readers what some of those responsibilities are in order to remain steady and focused while we eagerly await the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Since he's coming back soon, believers ought to be alert and sober-minded for prayer. This means that, as, that the believer's prayer life should be free from any distractions of panic and emotional instability brought by stress. I know may, I've done it. Maybe some of you have done it. Or like, I need to come to the Lord in prayer and we're just distracted. We're stressed out. We just finished yelling at somebody and we're just finished cursing at the driver that cut us off. You know, we've got bills we've got to pay, and we're just too distracted to really spend time with the Lord in fellowship. As a Christian, you must keep yourself mentally and spiritually alert so that your prayers will be effective and so they that they won't be hindered by those distractions, by all the noise that's going on. Your prayers can be effective prayers if you just, again, spend time, that quiet time, that alone time with the Lord. I know that I love spending time with all my kids, the, the, the times that I am able to talk to them. But I don't talk to them with my phone in my hand looking at them. I put it down because I want to dedicate my time to them. I want to sh- hear what they have to say. And also, whenever you know, we've had to teach them, hey, put your phone down if we're going to talk, because I, don't want them, I want them to hear what I'm trying to tell them. And so that's what I'm saying here, is that the Lord wants your full attention. And when you come to prayer, I'm assuming that you want His attention as well. And how is that occurring? How is that happening if... You just have the TV on, you have, you have your phone in your hand, you have all kinds of distractions going on around you. No, spend some time with prayer. I mean, it may be hard at first, but start just with in the morning. So you can start, there's different ways to start off, but just spend that quiet time with the Lord. He's your Father. And He wants to share that time with you. You're going to see he's going to hear you. Above all else, Peter says in verse 8, maintain constant love for one another. Such love will not point out the faults and failings of other believers, but will protect those faults and failings from public view. It's having their back knowing things about a believer, a fellow believer, a brother or sister, and saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to, if this gets out, you know, it's going to cause a lot of issues and problems, and, you know, it's protecting them. Of course, it's if, it, if it's an egregious, more immoral sin, you should say something, but I'm talking about something minor like, I don't know, you saw them accidentally steal a pen from 
you know, they took your pen accidentally. You, know, you, you don't want to go out there and, and be like, oh, that guy's a thief because he stole my pen. No. You know, you want to, again, just be aware of, protect your brother and sister, is what I'm saying. Someone has said, someone once said, hatred makes the worst of everything. Love is entitled to bury things out of sight. The statement, love covers a multitude of sins, which is a quote from Proverbs 10, 12, shouldn't be taken as a doctrinal explanation of how sins are put away. See, the guilt and penalty of sins can only be removed by the blood of Christ. And neither should that statement be used to condone sin or relieve a church from its responsibilities to discipline an offender. This statement, love covers a multitude of sins, means that true love is able to overlook minor faults and failures in other believers. Our Christian love should not only be constant and forgiving, but should also be practical by being hospitable to one another without complaining, without grumbling. Oh man, that person's gonna stay at my house. Uh, now I gotta clean it. I gotta clean the bathroom. And I gotta make sure that all, you know, all that stuff is picked up from the floor. Uh, can you come another day? You know, it's, it's doing it without complaining, just being hospitable. We should, as Christians, should share our homes with others willingly and generously, especially, especially during times of persecution, when assistance and encouragement and fellowship is desperately needed. Hospitality is a specific example of loving one another and was an important factor during the foundation of the church. It's a virtue that is not only commanded, not only, yeah, not as only, not, is not only commanded, but commended throughout the scriptures. You see, when we open the doors to our home, it's a reflection of God's hospitality towards us. And when we share it with others, when we share our home with others, we share with Christ. So anytime you decide to offer this kind of assistance, don't do it so that others will offer the same to you. Don't do it so that, oh, if they stay in my house, maybe I can stay in their mansion next week. You know, don't do it for any other reason. Just do it to glorify the Lord, to glorify God. Because you never know. According to Hebrews 13.2, by doing this, some of you have welcomed, welcomed angels, not me, but angels as guests without knowing it. Finally, our Christian love will be evident when we use the spiritual gifts God has given us to serve others. Romans 12 tells us that each Christian, each, if you're a born-again believer, you've all been given at least one spiritual gift that's not to be used for selfish gain, but for the glory of God and for the good of others. Contrary to what some Christians think, we're not meant to be terminals of God's gift to us. See, His grace reaches us but shouldn't end with us. We're intended to be channels through whom the blessings can flow to others. Does that make sense? We're not supposed to use these gifts and keep them and hold on to them. We're supposed to be channels where God's gifts, His blessings flow down. We're blessed by it, and then we bless others with it. We serve others with that gift. Now, 
You may not know what that gift is right now, but the more time you spend with the Lord in prayer, in reading of His Word, in studying, He will start to relieve these things or start to reveal these things to you. You know, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, I do see certain things and certain people that I'm like, man, that, that they would be good at this. But it's not my place, right? And that's not my place. I would want the Lord to really reveal that to you first. So, whatever it is that you're called to do, do it for the glory of God. And maybe you do already know what that gift is. And if you're not using it, man, that's what God gifted you for. That's why He gave you that gift so that you can serve others with it. Now, yeah, you may not be able to use it here at this church. I know that, again, we, we're limited to what we can do, but there are other places where you can serve, where you can share those gifts, whether it's administrative uh, gifts or whether it's giving, whether it's in worship or whether it's encouraging. You don't, you don't just have to encourage here at the church. You can, so many Christians out there that need it. Use those gifts Find places, and I'm sure that the Lord has maybe has revealed it to you, where you can, you know, share those gifts that you have. Go out there and do it. That's why He gave it to you. By adding the phrase, as good stewards of the very grace God has given us, Peter is saying that every believer in the church is important. Each has its job to do. Even the smallest, seemingly least important part of the body of Christ is important. Regardless of what Christians have been gifted to do, those gifts are to be exercised in such a way that they reflect their divine origin and purpose. And purposes. Peter says, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Peter is making the, the point that there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And both are important in the church. My gift isn't more important than your gift. You know, I, when I was serving at my own church, you know, I know there were times people wouldn't want, or people had the idea that cleaning the bathroom was less important than teaching. Well, let me tell you something. In God's eyes, both of those gifts are equally important. Don't let anyone tell you that cleaning or, or doing menial tasks are less important than, or, or not important in the church, because they are. There are many. Oh, now even though we're called to be witnesses for Christ, the truth is, not everyone is, has been gifted with teaching or preaching. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. There are many behind-the-scene ministries that are instrumental in making those public ministries possible. And God honors them just as much as the visible ones. Nevertheless, whatever you've been gifted to do, we must remember, or you must remember, that it was God who gave it to you. It's He who strengthens you, and it's He who enables you to use those gifts. So no matter how gifted you are, if you, the Lord has blessed you with 10 gifts, and as a result you're, you know, you're successful in ministry, ministry is blowing up, the church now you started last. You started to plan the church last month, and now you have two thousand people the following month. Again, you must understand 
that um, no matter how gifted you are or, or become in ministry, it's not because of any talent you possess. It's not because you were born a phenom or you were born with this way. The truth is, those gifts were given to you from above. The reason you're successful in ministry is because the Lord gave you those gifts. In fact, you have nothing which you did not receive. So he alone gets all the glory. And if he isn't, then ulterior motives must be exposed and they must be removed. Finally, Peter closes this section with his own doxology. To Jesus Christ, whom he knew in the flesh as a man who he personally knew, Peter writes words of praise appropriate only to the one who is also fully God. And there he says, To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And that's who God is. He understands who Jesus is. Glory and the power. Not for a period of time, but forever. And then he adds, and ever. Man, what, what an amazing, again, phrase there. What an amazing verse. All-powerful. Eternal. That's who, our Je- that's who Jesus is. That's who our Savior is. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right now, today is the day. If you've fallen away, if you've walked away from the Lord, or if you're on that verge of falling away, come to the Lord on your knees in prayer and just ask the Lord, give me that heart, Lord. If you've never asked the Lord to, or you never asked yeah, the Lord to come into your heart, you, you never received Him as your Lord and Savior, and you're ready to do that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that, but First, let me tell you that He cares for you. He died for you. You have to recognize your condition. You have to recognize you're a sinner. You have to admit that you've sinned. And you've fallen short of the glory of God. And once you sincerely admit that, then that's when God can start doing a work in your life. So if that's you, you're ready to do that. Wherever you're at, close your eyes, bow your heads. And with all your heart, pray this prayer in your, again, with all sincerity. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for walking away. Lord, I ask that you come now into my heart and save me. Save me from this condition. Lord, I I don't want to live that life anymore. I'm done. But I need your help. Because I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength. But I believe now that you have the power. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I confess him now, Lord, as my Savior. I receive your forgiveness by faith. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me new, Lord. Thank you for washing away my sins. And help me. Give me the strength now to walk according to your ways all the days of my life. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're watching and you prayed that, contact us, let us know. Um, give us a call or send us an email. We'll guide you in your next steps to being a Christian, being a follower of Christ. But I hope that, again, these words, these 11 verses of chapter 4, at least one verse, one word in there has spoken to you. You know, I know that sometimes I, in my, I'll read a, a passage and that I read a hundred times or that I've heard a hundred times in, in sermons. But there's always something in there. There's always some, something in a teaching. Even if it's not the best speaker, even if they're the most boring speaker, there's a, there's a message for me somewhere. There's always been a message for me. So I hope, again, that there was a message here for you. Um, and we're looking forward, I'm looking forward, and I hope you are too, of that day when the Lord arrives and he comes for us. And we're able to see him face to face, embrace him and hold him and say thank you. Thank you so much. I think those would probably be the words, first words coming out of my mouth. Thank you. I'll, I'll close with a word of prayer and then we'll end with one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. You've been so faithful to us, even though at times we've been so faithless. And yet you still love us. You still care for us. And that is a humbling thought, Lord. May we always remember that. We may, may that always be in, on everyone's mind that's here today, Lord. May they never forget where they came from and what you've done for them now. May we remain humble, Lord. May we remain, may we remain sensible or sensitive to, to you, to, the, to those that are hurting, those who are lost, Lord. May we have that heart of just that passion, that desire just to share the love of Jesus Christ. Not in an arguing, in a fighting way, but just in a loving way. Lord, teach us your ways. Continue to work in our lives. May we grow more in the knowledge of, of you and in the image of your Son. Watch over us this week. Protect us. Protect our families. Again, thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.